Good morning, everyone. So it's, it's really good to be with you this morning, and it's my pleasure this morning uh, to be starting off a new sermon series for us as we head into the new year. Um, so if you were with us uh, at this time of year back in 2021, uh, you may remember the series Encountering Jesus, uh, which was exploring the stories and encounters that Jesus had with people uh, in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 8 and 9. Um, And the passage at the end of chapter 9 said this, Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so we're beginning a new series today, uh, working through chapter 10 of Matthew. um, And we're calling it Go, as Jesus commissions his disciples to go out into this harvest field. Um, And he gives them instructions for what to do and what to expect. He said these things at the time to prepare them, but it was then written down to be useful to us and to those who would come later. Um, So we're going to be looking at the first section this morning. Uh, So this is Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 8, where Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Uh, So let's just pray before we get stuck into this. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it speaks to us and that it was given at a time for a certain people in a certain place, but by your spirit it is alive and active and continues to work and be powerful for us today. Amen. Amen. So as we come to look at this passage... Uh, We can see that Jesus called to himself those whom Matthew describes as his 12 disciples, uh, or later 12 apostles. Now, Jesus had lots of followers or disciples. A disciple is someone who would follow a Jewish rabbi, um, so a Jewish teacher. And Jesus' disciples included men and women from a variety of backgrounds at this time. And it really includes anyone who believes in Jesus. Uh, From then, back in Galilee in the first century, until now, um, with us, and continuing on into the future. So disciple is something of a catch-all term for all who would call themselves a follower of Jesus, so for all Christians. But here we see 12 men called out from the larger group of disciples and given the title apostle. So an apostle is essentially a messenger sent out bearing a commission. And for those of you who know your Old Testament history, the number 12 will resonate The people of Israel were known as being the 12 tribes of Israel, named after the 12 sons of Jacob back in the book of Genesis. Now, this is a bit of a rabbit hole. We could disappear down. Um, I'm prone to things like that. But suffice it to say for now that to the Jewish community, from the time they were led out of slavery in Egypt by Moses up to this time, 
Tribal heritage was about identity, value, and validity as being one of God's chosen people. So it's interesting from a Jewish perspective that we're not told the tribal background of these 12. But that's because Jesus is doing something new here. Because for us now, being the people of God is no longer about ancestry or Jewish lineage. It doesn't matter what your family background is or where you've come from. It's now about your response to Jesus and those whom he sends. So let's take a look um, at these 12. And they're understood from this passage and other listings in the New Testament um, to be grouped into three sets of four. Um, So firstly, we have Simon Peter. So he always tops every list of the apostles in the Bible. And he went on later to be a key leader of the church in Jerusalem uh, before traveling further afield. He is pioneering. He takes initiative. Uh, He's never said to have more authority than the other 11. And elsewhere in the New Testament, he's questioned and challenged and even corrected at times by others. Uh, But it makes sense for us to think of him as something of a leader of this group, a kind of first among equals. Uh, So next there's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and they were both fishermen, which was hard manual labor, and still is, of course. Um, Then we have James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen too, and Zebedee is considered to have been a wealthy owner of a fishing business. Uh, James was actually the first of the 12 to be martyred uh, in the book of Acts, and apologies for the spoilers if you're doing the Bible reading plan through Acts at the moment. Um, But James and John together were uh, then given the nickname the Sons of Thunder, which is really cool, um, but perhaps an indication of their temperament. So I wonder if you've ever felt unqualified to be called by Jesus, like you don't come from the right background or you're not religious enough. Well, these four men were fishermen. They weren't Pharisees. They were hard workers, but they weren't holy men. So next we have Philip. Philip was formerly a disciple of John the Baptist uh, before joining Jesus' followers. Uh, And then Thomas, uh, who later traveled east preaching the gospel, uh, with some later traditions claiming he made it as far as India. Um, Bartholomew is probably the same person as the Nathaniel in John's gospel, if you're familiar with John's gospel. And this is something I think you can give as a response if people ever say that the Bible's just like a big made-up story. There are a whole bunch of people with the same name or different names in different places, and I just don't think you'd make it up like that, personally. Um, And then there's uh, Matthew, who's listed last in his group of four. Uh, He's known as Levi elsewhere, um, and he was a tax collector for the Romans, which was not at all a respectable profession. Uh, Tax collectors were considered to be traitors to the Jews. So I wonder if you've ever felt unqualified to be called by Jesus, like you don't come from the right background, or you're not charitable or well-respected enough. Well, neither were some of these men. So on we go to James, son of Alphaeus. This is another James, not the same as the first James, and interestingly, also not the same James as the James who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. Uh, He might have been Matthew's brother, because Matthew's father was also called Alphaeus, but again, can't be sure. Uh, Then Thaddeus, he's known elsewhere as Judas of James, another James, Uh, but probably stuck with Thaddeus, um, as again, there were multiple Judases and Judes. Uh, And then Simon the Zealot. So the Zealots were political revolutionaries, a kind of Jewish extremist group, really. Uh, And he's Simon the Zealot, to again distinguish him from Simon Peter at the top. 
Um, and then lastly, Judas Iscariot. So he was the treasurer from the group. He looked after the money. Uh, he was stealing from them the whole time, and he went on to betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. So I wonder if you've ever felt unqualified to be called by Jesus, like you don't come from the right background or you've not been moral enough. Well, there are two things I know to be true about being called by Jesus and answering that call. Firstly, you come as you are. And secondly, everything changes. You come as you are, warts and all, so you don't try to hide your past or fix your life or just tidy up a few things first. You come as you are and find love and acceptance from God. And then watch him work in you and through you as everything starts to change. It always surprises me how little we know reliably about the Twelve outside of the Bible. And even within the Bible itself, many of them are rarely mentioned again after this point in the story. And that's because the corporate role is more important than the individual contribution. And the same is true for us today. Maybe you don't feel like your role is seen, and maybe you think that means it's not significant. But hidden roles contribute to group outcomes, and every church member is valuable to the mission of the whole. These 12 weren't the cream of the crop. They needed God's power. Jesus had confidence, not in the qualities of these men, not them themselves, but in the Holy Spirit who would equip them and us too to answer his call. So these are the, uh, those are the 12 apostles of Jesus called out, and he then sends them out with authority. So up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, it's been Jesus himself who's been performing the signs and wonders. Uh, but then he gives authority to these 12 to do similar works in his name. It says in the passage that they're given authority over impure spirits to drive them out or cast them out. Impure spirits are also uh, called evil spirits or unclean spirits, depending on your translation. Um, and later on in the passage, they're referred to as demons. They are real, created beings in the spiritual realm, in rebellion against God and hostile towards people, and they're capable of inflicting harm, whether physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual. And it's the authority over these spirits that's the, the basis of the ability to heal sickness and, and infirmity in this passage and cast out demons. And we saw that reflected in the miracles uh, Jesus himself performed back in chapters 8 and 9. The 12 are given authority over these spirits. And again, this is God's authority, not a confidence they had in themselves. But they were given authority over the impure spirits in order to cast them out to heal every disease and heal every affliction. In the book of Job, back in the Old Testament, Job himself suffers demonic attacks on his health, on his family and his livelihood through natural power, supernatural power, theft, disease, and death. And elsewhere in the Gospels, a woman who's been suffering from a chronic back condition is described by Jesus as having been bound by Satan for 18 years. So in a real way, sickness and suffering is a consequence and a result of living in a fallen world under the influence of dark spiritual power. Just to be clear, I'm not suggesting all physical illness necessarily has a demonic origin. It's not the same thing as demon possession. Christians get sick all the time. Um, trust me. Uh, but a Christian believer who is in Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit cannot be demon-possessed. 
But disease and affliction are the result of living in a fallen world. And they are used as tools by the enemy to oppose our discipleship and the work of the kingdom. And if you've ever served in pretty much any ministry context, you will know this. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, please do join a team to help serve on one of our upcoming Alpha courses. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, so authority was given uh, to the 12 to cast out demons, to heal every disease and every affliction. So I was reflecting on that, and I think it raises a slightly awkward question for us, and I want to grasp the nettle. So why don't we see every disease healed and people set free from every affliction in the church today? The text is clear from the preceding chapters that in the miracles of Jesus, every sick person was healed and every demon was cast out. And now that same authority is given to these 12. So why is that not our experience? So let's walk through it. So firstly, Jesus had the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He was God become human, a sinless man with the fullness of the Holy Spirit to empower his ministry. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it says in John's gospel that Jesus was sent by God and given the Spirit without limit. So this means he had constant and immediate access to all of what we might know as uh, the gifts of the Spirit. In all power and holiness, it was all in Jesus. Jesus is then sending out these 12 with that same authority. And again, these 12, not the larger group of disciples at this point. So at the time of the arrival of the kingdom of God in Jesus, that authority enabled the apostles to demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God and validate this new message. So fasting forward to today, God still has compassion on the sick and he still gives gifts of healings to the church and there will be many testimonies of that here. God is still at work, the kingdom is still advancing, lives are still being transformed and the world is still being renewed. But the world is bigger than our own experience and suffering and death are obviously still a reality. Not everyone is healed because the kingdom is not yet consummated. It's not yet the time when Christ returns in glory and the kingdom of God is the ultimate reality. The early followers of Jesus still got sick. They still suffered and died. But this time in Matthew's gospel demonstrates the arrival of the kingdom. We're now living in the time of kingdom advancement, and one day there will be no sickness, no suffering, oppression, or death when the kingdom is absolute. So in the one man Jesus is the fullness of the Holy Spirit in all power and giftedness, but it's the universal church today that is the body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit gives gifts across the body as he wills. So there are gifts of healings over here and over here. There's prophecy over here. There's faith over here. Everyone gets something, and no one person gets everything. The church today across the world still has authority over impure spirits. It still sees diseases healed and people set free from afflictions of all kinds. And affliction is, is quite a broad term in the original language. Don't overlook the smaller stuff. God is still at work, and the kingdom continues to advance. But there's another aspect to this that I feel provoked to kind of pull on a bit. Because the general spiritual environment in a nation or in a people group 
will affect the work of the Spirit as that gets pulled into the church. In the book of Acts, the vast majority of the healings and miracles that take place do so for unbelievers. So this is frontline ministry in the mission field that sees the majority of the signs and wonders. There are individual situations that will differ, and not to overlook the very real poverty and complex, difficult situations that individuals and families face, but to generalize this nation as a whole, we haven't needed a high level of faith. Suffering is a universal reality, but overall our faith in this nation is lower. Our dependence on God is lower. We've had supermarkets full of food, again, to generalize. And if we got sick, we can go and see a doctor or we can go to the hospital, which is free at the point of use. We've had schools that would teach our children. None of these things are things that could have been taken for granted in this time, and certainly not in many parts around the world today. But for us, we've not needed a high level of faith and dependence on God. And maybe the level of signs and wonders that we've seen and experienced is a reflection of that. But now, the nation is in a mess. Have you noticed? And I don't want to sound mercenary about it, but this is a really exciting time for us to be the spirit-filled community of Jesus followers in this nation. Because there's an awareness that the need is growing. The secular structures and the world's answers are proving inadequate. And in the midst of the fear and the anxiety and the despair, we have the good news of hope in the gospel of Jesus. We have something different to offer than the fear control of the media and the culture around us. God is calling us out to be a city on a hill, the light in the darkness, and he will equip us and empower us to do that work as we step into it. So we're told in... Um, the book of First Corinthians, to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. And I think eagerly desiring something isn't something that comes very naturally to British people. And if you're here originally from another nation, you might have noticed this. <laughs> um, but I want to tell you a story about blueberries. Just, you know, that kind of light relief in the middle. My children love blueberries, and their granddad loves to buy them blueberries. They're six, three, and one. Um, and when that punnet of blueberries comes out, they have no problem being eagerly desirous for those blueberries. And the older two, we teach to be polite and to ask nicely for things. It's in progress, but that's what we ask of them. But our one-year-old can't do that, so she expresses her eager desire with an angry point and the noise, Argh! And I just wonder whether we need to be more like that, whether we need to have that eager desire and just come to God and ask him for what we want from him. Maybe you're sitting here and you think, well, I've, I've, seen, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of gifts. I've been really blessed in my life. But it doesn't matter how many blueberries you've already had. There's a punnet full. They're good gifts that God wants to give us. Blueberry was an analogy of the gifts of the Spirit, by the way, just to be clear. Okay, so the 12 apostles were called out and sent out to drive out, and lastly, to close out. So notice in the passage, 
It says that the disciples are told not to go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans, but to go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This might put our backs up slightly here. It doesn't seem to sound like what we know of Jesus. Sounds a bit kind of exclusive and restricting for who we should share the good news with. But what's actually going on here? Why is this restriction to Israel here? And I think this is important as we go through the rest of this series to kind of deal with this now. So firstly, and perhaps most simply, it's pragmatic. So Jesus here is constraining the mission of this first sending of the Twelve to Jewish Galilee, which is in the north of uh, the country. So the original language here translates literally, do not go away on the road of the Gentiles. So in other words, don't go too far north into Syria or travel too far south into Samaria. Stay in Galilee. So it's a restriction of area, not on contact with people of different uh, backgrounds. The Gospel accounts are full of Jesus interacting with Jews and Samaritans and even Greeks at one point as part of his ministry. So think of it this way. We recently enjoyed putting on our Christmas fun day here uh, with crafts and refreshments, live music and drama, and people engaging those who passed on the street Uh, to invite them into the activities that we had going on in the building. So now imagine if instead of the team being out on Front Street, they went and ministered outside a shopping centre in Bristol. Hi, we're from Gateway Church in York. Uh, We're doing our Christmas fun day today, so do pop in for a warm mince pie and enjoy some crafts. That isn't going to make sense for people doing their shopping in Bristol. Gateway York, who are you? Why are you here? What has your event got to do with us? It's not that there's anything wrong with the people of Bristol or that they don't want to have fun at Christmas, but it wouldn't be appropriate or at all strategic for us to direct our time and energy for the Aiken Churches Together Christmas Fun Day to them. It's a silly example, but you get the idea. The 12 here, they're not ready or prepared for Gentile mission. And the Gentiles and Samaritans, they aren't ready to hear from these 12. There was a huge amount of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. But what Jesus teaches throughout this chapter makes preparation for the message to go wider later in the story. What starts with the people of Israel in Matthew 10 becomes a commission to make disciples of all nations and people groups in Matthew 28. So one reason is pragmatic. But the sending of the twelve to preach the good news of the kingdom is also restricted to the Jews here because it's the fulfillment of their story. Paul's writing, uh, when Paul writes to the church in Rome about the Jewish people, he says this in Romans 9 uh, from verse 4, to the people of Israel belongs the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So here Paul's very briefly running through the history of the Old Testament, showing that Jesus arriving, God becoming man, is the fulfillment of the Jewish story. It's closing out this era of history and beginning something new. Jesus was Jewish, and he came as the Jewish Messiah. God's people later expanded, praise God, to include Gentiles en masse out of Jewish beginnings. God originally promised to Abraham back in the book of Genesis that from him would come a nation, so that's the Jewish Israelites, and then through them a blessing to others. 
So this begins with Israel, but we'll see it made clear as we go throughout the rest of this series that the teachings also aimed at the spread of the wider church. Jesus had already said back in Matthew chapter 8 that many will come from the east and the west, so that's a reference to the nations beyond Israel, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But much of what Jesus says and did only really makes sense after the crucifixion and resurrection. The disciples are often described in the Gospels as not understanding or being confused by the sayings of Jesus. So the disciples were sent out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to demonstrate its power, to heal the sick with power over sickness, to raise the dead with power over death and a solution in Jesus to the problem of sin, to cleanse lepers with power over impurity as social barriers are broken down, and to cast out demons with power over the enemy. Jesus sends out the disciples as he himself was sent as a display of God's love to the world. It was an act of great generosity and self-giving as the Father sent the Son in the power of the Spirit to make himself known. And as Jesus says to his disciples towards the end of John's Gospel, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So as the Father sent the Son in the power of the Spirit, so the Son has sent us to be his witnesses in the power of that same Spirit. So I want to pray for us now. And I want to pray for an equipping. I want to pray for anyone who is looking to move in a new gift. I want to pray for people who are looking to grow in gifts they already have received. And I want to pray against anything that's going to hold us back in this. The anxiety, the distraction, the what-ifs. Not because I have any confidence in me, but because I trust God. And I think I just have this sense this morning that he wants to do something and move among us. So I'm going to pray for us all as a group, um, and then I'm going to join the prayer team who are going to be down here on your left. Um, and if anyone would like to come for prayer individually, I would love to pray with you. And we'd just be asking God uh, for what you want and seeing what he will do. So let's, should we just pray now? Father, I thank you that you sent your Son in the power of the Spirit. And thank you for the cross and the blood of Jesus as an answer to sin. I thank you that you number us amongst your children now. And I thank you, Lord, that you love to give good gifts to your children. So, Lord, I want to pray for that equipping this morning. I want to pray for, for anyone who feels like they want to move in a new gift. That, Holy Spirit, you would come and that you would bring that anointing this morning. I want to pray for anyone who wants to grow in a gift. I want to pray for that eager desire to, be, to come out and to, to lead someone to wanting to grow in that gift, Lord. I pray for that that fresh anointing for that gift to grow. And Lord, I pray against those things that would hold us back. 
the anxiety, the distraction, the nervousness, the Britishness. And Lord, I ask that you would move among us now. Not because we have confidence in ourselves, Lord, but that we trust completely in you. And we come to you asking and trusting that you want to give. For your glory and for your namesake. Amen.